Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Pastor Kent Redfern. Kent has been the pastor of Muldoon Christian Community in Anchorage for over 30 years. In that time, he's watched the perception of organized religion change, for the better in some situations, and for much worse in others. And while the fundamental job of a pastor has not changed, their methods have. Meaning, because of the influx and often bombardment of information nowadays, it has become necessary for leaders of churches to find ways for their message to be heard above the fray. Okay, this is the part of the intro where I give a shout out to the Crude Company men. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to everyone for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. If you'd like to subscribe and help keep this podcast going, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. And if you have a chance, a review on iTunes also helps a lot. Okay, back to Pastor Kent. If you're a pastor or part of a church, then you know there are proven ways to grow a church. The most time-tested method is to target a specific demographic. Rather than following that method, Pastor Kent has spent decades creating an all-inclusive culture at his church. And he'll be the first to tell you he doesn't have all the answers, and that, ultimately, he believes the best thing to have is faith. Because a pastor's responsibility to their community is, according to Pastor Kent, to help people navigate a broken world headed to an unbroken eternity. So here he is, Pastor Kent Redfern. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Pastor Kent, how are you? Great, how are you, Cody? I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good. It's Friday. It's Friday, it's Alaska, it's beautiful. So there are a lot of things going on right now in your life. There are. My daughter just got married. My other daughter moved to another country. My son got a job at the Alaska Railroad. Uh, grandbaby number two on the way. So lots of action. And one of your daughters um, did a sermon yeah. last Sunday. She's a language student in Istanbul, Turkey. And learning Turkish, doing really well, and loves the Turkey life. And, you know, Anchorage would fit into Turkey. I don't even know. There's 18 million people in Istanbul. Really? Yeah, so it's huge. And she's loving it. You know, I've only heard good things about Istanbul. It's a beautiful place. You yeah. Know, half of it's Asia, half of it's Europe. And uh, so that it's really fun to... They'll, they'll say, on the other side... So it'd be, all right, oh, it's on the Asia side or it's on the Europe side. Lots of bridges, beautiful weather, lots of history. So what's it like seeing your kids move on to these pivotal moments in life? Fantastic. It, it's uh, a bit uh, double-minded maybe. Yeah, super, super, oh, no, they're gone. And fantastic feelings of success or 
my key sentence for my life is becoming people of realized potential. And when it's my own family reaching their potential, it's fantastic. I view potential like a balloon. If you have a balloon and you blow into it twice, it's a fully inflated balloon. But you can blow into it two or three more times and it's still fully inflated. Or you can blow into it 20 more times. It's the same balloon, but with increased uh, air, the same balloon has further potential. And so my kids are the same kids they've always been, but with each growing moment, they're the same, only bigger. And the world has a way of trying to make us small. I was in New York at a LaGuardia Hotel, and I had a couple hours, so I went and I laid down. They had about 100 square foot of AstroTurf. And uh, there's a dude laying there, so I said, I'll talk to him. I said, how's it going? He goes, good. He goes, I'm on vacation. I said, from where? He said, oh, 182nd Street. I said, are you on vacation and you live here? He said, I bet you he was 40. He said, I've never been out of the city. Really? Yeah. And so uh, that's, a, that's a, a pretty small existence to never get out of the city, never get out of the area. And uh, so the bigger people become, the happier I am for them. So you said being people of realized potential? Correct. I even like to say fully realized potential. I, an old story, I don't remember who wrote it, a guy who had a dream and the guy on the stage was a masterful pianist playing the most gorgeous music. And he goes, I got to meet that guy. So he goes up there and it turns around and it's him. And he said, I'm the man you might have been. And he went back to sleep and then he saw a guy that was doing something else with excellence. And the point of the story is kind of be good get, to get old and be the man you could have been or the person you could have been instead of, well, I could have done that, but I never tried. And so... Fully realized potential in body, fully realized potential in mind, in uh, relationships, sociology, spirituality, uh, faith, health, everything. You talk to a lot of people every week. I do. How do you get them to pursue this, this realized potential? I don't know. I try every way I know to do. And uh, generally speaking, what motivates me is somebody else doing it. So I like to have illustrations of people that try. You know, I love the uh, I love the person that has huge obstacles and overcomes them and does something great. And I, I teach a lot from the Bible, and there's a lot of guys in there in the Bible. And then, there, you know, there's just as many in there that had great potential and lost it all. So it's filled with, you know, both sides. But, you know, a little boy has five stones and kills a giant and wins for the whole country. And I love sports. If I could, I'd do a sports illustration every weekend. Uh, you know, <laughs> Mary Lou Retton, when I was in high school, she had knee surgery. Six weeks later, she won the gold in gymnastics. And uh, the guy that fell down was at Co. in 1968 or something. I wasn't watching then. Uh, he fell down in the Olympics, got up and won the race. Uh, I love those kind of stories. There's a song that says, give me a cause that is grand and a reason to stand that calls for the best I can be. So I like to try to find illustrations of that salt the oats and make somebody, I want to be the best I can be. And whatever, you know, whatever it is they do, that they'd be the best at it. 
Is this a kind of a new philosophy that you you've had, or have you always been like this? I've always been like this, but it's a new wording. I read it in a book called Leading Without Power by Max Dupree about 15 years ago or so. But uh, I, prior to that, I said, I want to live for the success of the other. And by that, rather than me reach my full potential, I'd like to help you reach yours. And then along came the terms, becoming people of fully realized potential. And I, I really like the way that matched what I believe. You know, Christianity gets put into the category of religion, but my belief is that really it's all of life. And if you're a pilot, be the best pilot you can be. If you're an artist, you're a dancer, you're a rap artist, you're whatever you are, do it, do it to your best. And, and watch God actually make you better than you thought you could be. I, I like it when people are shocked by their own life. It's like, whoa, how did I do that? I, I didn't know I had that in me. It's like, yeah. You got all kinds of stuff in you you don't know. It always seems like those people realize it after so many years after the fact. So they'll get to a certain age and um, then they'll look back and they'll see how much they've accomplished. As, because I think that it's really hard to realize what you're accomplishing as you're accomplishing it. Right. Seems like an ordinary day. You know, all I did is write a song. So back in the day, I, I'm not up on current songwriters, but uh, Paul McCartney at Wings, he was sitting on his balcony and he, he picked up his guitar and he said, you think a people would have had enough of silly love songs? Took about eight minutes, made millions and millions of dollars for him, still making millions for him. Because uh, sometimes in the little moments is huge greatness. So don't despise the little moments. There's all kinds of greatness that comes out of ordinary days. You know, one thing I've always appreciated about your sermons is that in addition to being spiritual, they're also philosophical. I love philosophy. I've always seen you as kind of a lifelong learner. You're always bringing up a new book or a study you read or a class you took. As a pastor, why do you think it's important to constantly be learning? Well, good. Thank you. Actually, as a human, I think it's important to be learning because life becomes drudgery and monotonous if we live in what yesterday held for us rather than in what uh, today and tomorrow. So the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Most people deal on yesterday rather than today and forever. The greatest thoughts haven't been thought yet. The greatest books haven't been written yet. The greatest songs haven't been performed yet. And to wake up every morning and say, I want to dial in on something awesome for today. So part of my weakness is I'm not a big history guy. Mine is more about what's in the future. Where, where are we headed? What, what potentialities do we have? But history is important, but I'm just not a fan of history myself. But I read, uh, I try to read four books a month uh, to, to kind of help me stay current. I don't read novels, which I should, but I read, I try to read the uh, top books in each category each year. And it puts me in places, you know, I never imagined. Like, I read a whole book on salt. I'm thinking, okay, but it was number one book in its category, so I read it. If, if learning is um, a pyramid, all learning brings you closer together at the top of the pyramid. It, 
not learning keeps you separated. So uh, I'm a Christian. The more I learn about a Muslim friend, the closer we get as we reach the, the top of the pyramid. We, we go, oh, I believe that. You believe that. We're not that different after all. And so uh, learning is key. Learning is life. Uh, I don't know that <clears throat> there's a lot of learning apart from reading. Even if you take a class, they read or you read, somebody has to read. Mm -hmm. And that's one I bemoan a little, the technology of, of not reading. Because you can watch a five-minute uh, review of the book instead of get in and read it yourself. And I think different neurotransmitters are triggered when you read than when you watch. Uh, neuro uh, pathways are created when you read. So anyways, great leaders are great readers. Did you just come up with that? No, I, I've thought about it a long time. Because uh, back to full potential, I'm a leader. Well, I sure don't want to be a bad one. And so I better keep reading. And how can I, how can I learn? How can I do that? Uh, I guess a famous illustration is sharpening the axe. Mm -hmm. It just takes a day or two. If you're a public speaker, a couple days in, your axe is dull. Here was like, I heard that already. So I better get back and sharpen that thing. Here's a great illustration. Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, no, George Foreman was getting ready for a big fight. It's 4 a.m. He's running 18 miles. And the camera crew gets on the back of a truck because they don't want to run with him. And they're driving <laughs> in front of him, interviewing him. And uh, they say to him, they say, you know, don't you just want to sleep in some days? You don't want to get up every morning and run 18 miles and get ready for this fight. He said, no, actually, I do. He said, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to stand in a, uh, in a ring in front of millions of people and hundreds of millions on television. And the whole world will know if I did my road work then. And so when you stand up to speak, everybody knows if you did your road work. Yeah. Yeah. They know if you read, they know if you're just making it up as you fly by. You know, and I also think that, that by reading, you're exposing yourself to the greats of history and you're not necessarily putting yourself on a, uh, a very short plateau, comparing yourself to people that are immediately around you. You're comparing yourself to the best that have ever done it. Sure. Uh, for example, uh, I know way more than Socrates knew. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't know how to use an iPhone. He didn't know, but he was, he was smarter than me, but I know more than he did. And so I can rest in the fact that I know more than he knew, or I can say, I need to, I need to be developing my smartness, my IQ. I need to be developing my potential of my brain. He couldn't imagine air travel, probably. He couldn't imagine uh, landing a man on the moon or a person in outer space. But he was brilliant. So that's why I got a degree. One of the reasons I got a degree in philosophy, because I wanted to tap into uh, the great minds and just see what I could learn. Mm -hmm. So you said that you know more than Socrates, but he was smarter. W what's the difference between those two? Yeah, so... Uh, Knowledge is maybe a breadth of of insight or a breadth of experience for me, while uh, smart or intelligent quotient is the capacity of the brain, and his his neural capacity far <laughs> exceeds mine. Uh, but uh, you know, he never hit the beach in Maui. He never got to go hang gliding in Oahu. He 
And so I've had much more experience than he would have ever dreamed of having. And so in that way, experience and knowledge go together. In fact, in the Bible, to know is to experience. Uh, the sexual relationship was often called to know. And so I know so much more than he knew, but I couldn't hold a candle to his uh, wisdom, his, uh, his brightness, his capacity of thought. And what was that, the what relationship? Called to know? Yeah. The sexual relationship. Okay, to so know. So say Adam knew his wife Eve. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a knowing in sex that's probably the greatest knowing there is on in, on earth. That's why it's such a powerful thing in the world. It's a, a very... Um, it's a very intimate knowing and it's a spectacular thing God created there. So what do you see as your responsibility as a pastor to the community? Well, that's a big question. Um, as a, as a church, uh, let's say you are running a accounting firm. You want to know your assets. What are my assets and what are my liabilities? About 20-something years ago or so, Anchorage did, I think it was called Anchorage 2020, and it was asset mapping. And they were listing all the assets in Anchorage. That makes Anchorage a great place. Not one church was listed. Hmm. Uh, I was going to those. Catholic social services and Lutheran social services were considered an asset. Every other church was either not considered an asset or ignored. So I set out to say, how could our church be considered an asset to the community. And it seems that an asset that nonprofit organizations can do is emergency cold weather shelters, uh, feeding type uh, ministries or programs. I'm, I'm really groping right at the moment because a, a child who never came to our church but went to school across the street from us, 12 years old, hung himself the other day. The viewing was at our our place, mm -hmm. and I thought I could. I wish I could have done more. I'm not a movie guy, but I saw a clip of uh, Schindler's List, and Schindler has a pen, and he looks at it and he said, "If I hadn't have bought this pen, I would have had more money to save lives." And so, when churches build bigger and bigger buildings, and uh, we get fancier and fancier, whatever, and the kid out there just needs hope. It seems like a disparity here. Like, like, hold it. Uh, we don't, you know, like a projector, video projector. Churches use video projectors now almost exclusively. Well, they go from like a thousand bucks to a million. You can get a million dollar projector. And I have some friends who have million dollar projectors. And I, God bless them. For me, that's not an asset to my community. You know, the, the hungry kid in the street doesn't care. So I get a call. I'm on the phone, actually. And... The police interrupt my call. I didn't know they could do that. They said, APD. I said, yeah. They said, uh, we just need help. I said, yeah. They said, we uh, we have a little boy here. He came, we found him living in a um, refrigerator box behind East Bowl, East 40 Bowl or whatever it's called there at the bowling alley at the end of the bar in Muldoon. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. He said he came home from school and his parents had moved. And he's just been living in this box. Uh uh, Reverend, is there anything you can do? That's the kind of thing where I feel like an asset to the community. Uh, I feel like I measure things that are important to me, but I want to de have deliverables that are important to people. 
And so I was about 17 years old. I lived in Calcutta, India for three months. Abject poverty, the most difficult poverty I've ever seen. Uh, they loaded all the children. They called them street urchins. They loaded all the children into uh, buses and drove them out of town to the dump. And about 30,000 kids live at the dump. So we go out there to give them milk and food, milk and bread. We're in a truck handing out milk and bread. And the line is way longer than the milk and the bread. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the line got none. And they're crying and moms are going... I don't speak their language, but they're pointing up to me and then to their mouth and then to their baby's mouth. So that's when, that was like 1978, I decided to try to live simply so that others can simply live. And I think that's a Gandhi quote. But uh, so I think churches in Anchorage are an asset by delivering everyday helpful things for people. Uh, at the same time, spiritual guidance, spiritual life. But, you know, most people don't care how much you love until they uh, know that you love enough to care. So uh, those are kind of the things I'm watching these days in my life. Uh, hopefully, you know, you're reaching your full potential and you're successful. You have extra money. And with your extra money, you can buy a nicer car or you can keep yours another year or two and help another guy get a car. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing I'm about. In that situation with the child living in a refrigerator box, mm -hmm. what do the police want you to do in that situation? Well, back then, you know, this was several years back. I don't think foster homes and emergency care for children really existed at the time. And so we found a place for the child to spend the nights until they could get whatever courts need to do to place a child. Now I think it would be much different. Uh, but even even today, Anchorage is exceedingly low on places for young people to be safe. It's just really a tough situation that uh, I don't even know if there's 25 places for a homeless child to sleep. In your experience with this city and your church, what are the, or what is the, maybe the most overlooked thing that we as a community need to pay attention to? Great question. Probably great things would flow out of common things. You know, if you're, if you're putting rocks in a jar and you put the little ones in and then the big ones, you're going to end up with extra stuff. But if you put the big ones in first, then all the little ones can fill in around the jar and you can get way more in the jar. So I would say, like, if you get people when they're running red lights, kind of, all right, then you're probably going to catch the, the guy who does way more than run red lights kind of idea, you know. So, get them on the smaller infractions? Yeah, uh, yeah because it's that smaller that leads or is the tail end of the larger. So I would say, I think Anchorage could be more courteous to each other. Uh, I think the simple courtesy. Uh, our church is at DeBar and Patterson. And two weeks ago or so, somebody killed a guy and dumped him at the bus stop in front of our church. 
So we can say the thing we need to do is capture all the guys doing that. But if we just all practice more human decency, we will, we will capture that. And so I would say that Anchorage would be greatly benefited by simply dialing in on kindness, courtesy, sort of what the dude said, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Uh, love, kindness, appreciation. Spiritually, I think there's other things, but sociologically, I think courtesy would be probably the key. The road by our church is a dividing line between gangs. And we've done uh, three funerals at our church for teenage murder victims that were killed by gangs. And, you know, stop that. And I agree. However, if we get those people when they're in kindergarten and teach them common love, common kindness, respect, honoring other human life. I think it goes a long ways to changing. I think that comes to the home. And so if I were to say kind of one specific place for us to do this, I think Anchorage could use a great boost in moms and dads staying committed to their kids their whole life in a loving home environment. And how do we do that? I don't know. That's the million-dollar question. I think, uh, I think turning our hearts toward the, the creator of love helps us be loving. Uh, rather than all of us try to reinvent the wheel, we can turn to the scripture. We can turn to the God who already he doesn't invent the wheel. He is the wheel. And you know everybody on the earth basically knows this. For God is love. It's not, it's not a secret, but living that out. So the closer we get to the God that's the God of love, the more we'll probably live loving. We had a Christian school and, and a daycare, and uh, over time we closed that kind of philosophically, I did. But um, we had three, four, and five-year-olds not wanting to live. And I, I'm just dumbfounded. How do you have that much pain at three years old? Mm. We need to... Common common kindness in the home will fix things like that. And I went to hear the world's leading expert on teenage suicide. He was at Regional Hospital years ago. It was hilarious. It was the funniest thing. It was packed, man, with doctors, everybody, people with white coats and stethoscopes and counselors. And they they introduced him. It might, might, it might have taken five minutes to introduce this guy, doctor of this and doctor of that. And... And uh, he leans up, he gets up, he says, uh, I'm going to disappoint all y'all today, he said. <laughs> I just hate to say it, but I'm just really going to disappoint you. He said, do you want to know why kids are killing themselves in our world today? It's your house payment. Because you'd rather have a big house and have mom and dad go off to work 30, 40 hours extra every day than have one of them stay home and love the kid. And until one parent stays home and loves the kid. They're going to keep killing themselves because all a child needs is one adult who's crazy about him. And he sat down. And so my kind of take, I like to tell people I'm crazy about him. You know, my, you're awesome. You got a bright future. You can do this. And so, you know, we believe in eternity. We believe in eternity with God. We believe in eternity without God. But very few of us are motivated by the without God part. We're motivated by, you know what? God's got something great for you. 
I know the plans I have for you. They're good. You're going to have a great future. If you weren't a pastor, what could you see yourself being? Well, I have a bunch of those things. One, I'd love to be a medical ethicist. I have a minor in ethics. And the world as it has developed has questions that ancient documents aren't prepared to answer. Um, and so I would love to try to apply the Bible to current, everyday, urgent technological questions, uh, genetic selection. Um, uh, do you go in and edit the human gene so that the child doesn't have the BRCA gene? Or uh, I, would, I would love to do that. What's the argument against that? The argument against it is um, we don't know the results. It's never been tested. So a guy just actually altered the human genome in China, and I'll be surprised if he doesn't spend the rest of his life in jail because testing on a mouse is kind of accepted. Testing on a human isn't. And so he altered the DNA codes of two girls, uh, uh, two people who turned out to be girls. He altered the DNA. And uh, he was trying to eliminate a weakness that allows some disease to develop. But he did not have any moral support anywhere in the world for testing on human beings. So he just went rogue. He did. And you know what's in the weirdest way, if it works, he'll be like a rogue hero. Mm -hmm. But right now, he's the heel. People are like, you idiot. You can't test on humans. <laughs> you know, uh, I think some people like Hitler tested on humans, and it's considered the worst thing you could ever do. Mm -hmm. But he did. And uh, so I, I, like, I like that. Uh, the other thing I might like to do is make a lot of money so I could give it to do the things I love. Because uh, I'm the kind of guy that I need other people to make a lot of money so I can spend it for them. It'd be kind of fun to be on the other side. I have a couple of friends who are billionaires, and it's pretty cool. You know, uh, they can say, you know, give ten million to that, and it's not even interest on one account. Mm -hmm. uh, I just saw Jeff Bezos is divorced. His wife got thirty nine billion in the divorce, and she could give a billion dollars to, you know, in malaria in. Uh, Whatever. Some, and that'd be kind of cool to do that side, too. But I'm on the other side of receiving the gifts. Uh, and then the most uh, natural weakness in the entire world is drinkable water. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would love to have another life to say, let's find a way to get water to every person on the planet who needs water. We have water wells in West Africa that we drill. And uh, it's... You know, it helps the starfish. It didn't help the whole beach, but it helped that one. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've helped maybe 20 villages in West Africa have water. But, you know, to see these children without any water is just a killer to me. I mean, it's something that we take for granted here. Right. You know, Hickel years ago, Governor Hickel, I should say, years ago, had the view of a water pipeline. He said that uh, gas and oil will be, will be a, a big seller. But what the world's going to need is our water someday. And uh, he's right. I don't know how we'd ever get it to where it needs to go, but uh, potable water is a crisis on the planet. Yeah, I think that if 
people need it bad enough, they'll find a way to get it. Maybe, because systems are aligned against them. So in West Africa, I was trying to build a building for an orphanage. And I guess I was talking about Alaska's water. So oh, oh, yeah, the yeah, rest okay. of the United States, I understand that yeah, it's, okay. it's very difficult in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, even there, the systems will be a certain type of person will get it first. And, and so, like, let's say there's 10 people that need water. The poor baby will be last on the list. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know why systems work that way, but somehow they do. And so, you know, how do you deliver, you know, so you're a 50-year-old that chose to be homeless. That's fine with me. But that little baby that's one month old didn't choose it. And so uh, that's what I was referring to is like even in Anchorage, Anchorage has plenty of food. But over one out of 10 children are food insecure in Anchorage. And it's not because we lack food. We have plenty of food to feed everybody in Alaska. So how do you think your job as a pastor in Anchorage has changed over the years? I don't know if my job has changed, but I hope I've grown in it because I started at 23. I was 23, single, and not ordained. So strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. But somehow God allowed me to keep serving. And uh, over the years, I've learned that uh, it's God's world, it's God's church, that I don't need to carry that load myself. And so I overdid it for quite a few years, almost as if the weight was on me instead of on God. Like I was reading the Bible, it said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I thought, liar, this is killing me. <laughs> what do you mean light? This is, and, and it's like, no, you, you created that world and you have to carry it. If you just rest in the world I created, I'll carry it. And so it was a, a really great insight for me. And, and then I, I think the pressure to change people's eternity, where people spend forever, uh, sort of eclipsed the awareness that people need to live forever. But they also have to live till next Monday. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't do much next Monday stuff when I started out. And you do now. I'm trying to, yeah. I'm trying to, you know... Uh, stop and you know like we saw a guy he passed out in a driveway it was midnight or 12 30 or something and normally i try to get him to go to heaven but the fact is he needs to get out of the driveway more than he needs to go to heaven right then yeah and so my wife said hey let's help him you know all kinds of you know when you turn your eye it's everywhere in anchorage places to serve places to say i live for the other what about the biggest changes you've seen in your church or in your community over the past 30 years? Well, easy in the community, the diversity. The uh, If I understand the mayor correctly, I heard him at Martin Luther King celebration say 18 of the 20 most diverse census tracts in the United States are in Anchorage and mostly in East Anchorage where we are. And so... 30 years ago, there were not a hundred and something languages in Mountain View, but now there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way you grow a church is really interesting. There's several ways, but the main way you grow a church is you pick a certain kind of person and you reach them. You cater to their needs. So my friend, he has a picture and he can tell you the kind of shoes the guy wears, 
the brief, he has a Gucci briefcase. He uses a Mont Blanc pen. He wears uh, Italian shoes. He drives a BMW. They, and they, they're good at reaching those guys. And so congratulations. Our model is we want to be effective with a, a protractor. We want to be able to draw a circle a mile around our building and say, are we able to love those people? And then maybe five miles around our building. And so it forces us to learn multicultural skills, multi-ethnic conflict resolution. And so the biggest change undoubtedly for me has been multi-ethnic world developing. And I couldn't be happier. I love it. It is so fun. Uh, uh, you know, like, just take prayer. In India, when I was there, they prayed. They would bow kind of forward and backward like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was in, uh, where was I? In, in they went side to side. Mm -hmm. And then I was in Australia. They kind of hop. And, you know, if you're not careful, you'll think, well, one of these is right. No, they're all right. They're mm -hmm. right for each culture to express their worship in their way. And so to create a church, uh, so our church, for example, I'm, we don't ever ask, but I'm 95% sure, right down the middle, Democrats and Republicans. 50% Democrat, 50%. I think it's beautiful because we're not about Democrats or Republicans. We're about Jesus. And so to, uh, uh, to East High, I'm graduate East High, I'm wearing my shirt today. East High is the most diverse high school in the United States, and the principal's on our board, and we couldn't be happier. I have a goal of 100 nations worshiping at our church. What are you at now? I think we're at about 40-something. It depends on if they all make it that weekend. But So we talked about changes locally. What do you think is the biggest change you've seen in organized religion over the past 30 years? Biggest change in organized religion. I would say the huge disappointment in the corruption of organized religion. Uh, in the past, you know, 30 years ago, it was like, maybe, but now we know there's some really ugly stuff that goes on in the name of religion. And, you know, in the past, to be freedom of the press is limited to those who own one. Mm -hmm. In the past, nobody owned a press. But now with blogs and all the availability, everybody can be a journalist, so to speak. Most of them are pretty bad. They're not experts like you, but they, <laughs> well, thank they, you. they try, right? <laughs> and so I would say if religion were a ship and you are a thinking person, you'd go, I don't want to get on that ship. You know, that boat's, that boat's messed up. And, uh, and so... I think it's just, you know, we have people abusing people in the name of religion. We have people killing people in the name of religion. We have people hating in the name of religion. And so uh, that's real widespread now to be able to know about it. And religion has done terrible things in Alaska. I mean, we have hurt villages. We have hurt our, our uh, First Nations people, all in this name of religion. And so that would be the biggest change from my perspective. So say somebody comes to Muldoon Christian Community, your church, and they have that perspective about religion. I mean, how do you talk to that person? Well, first of all, I love it. That's my favorite person to talk to because uh, I, like, uh, I like talking to atheists. I like talking to people of other beliefs. I like talking to people with no beliefs. And... 
my favorite verse in the Bible on this is in Isaiah 1, 18. It says, come now, let us reason together. And uh, so one day I did a funeral for a little baby. The baby uh, was so small, we bought doll clothes to put the baby in. I mean, the casket wasn't even a foot long. And we put the baby down into the ground and it was rainy and miserable. And I'm kind of mad at God. I say, I say, okay, God, you're, the, you're up there and everything's cool. I'm down here and it's miserable right now. And, you know, you can't see God. But I had this little image come to mind of a tear in God's eye. And when somebody says, you know what, I went to church and I got abused. This happens more than I want to admit. I went to church and someone stole my wife. A clergyman stole my wife. I want to be able to say, you know what, I think, I think God cries about that too. Uh, I, think, I think that's a heartbreaker for God. It's a heartbreaker for me. Uh, it's clearly a heartbreaker for you. Now, how do we heal our broken hearts? Um, racism in the name of religion sometimes has been atrocious. Uh, and to honestly approach it and tell the truth. I think, I think the main thing churches do, are supposed to do, is tell the truth. But when we lie as a religion, uh, we lie, oh, no, uh, what was that in a, I don't, it was before my time, but some spy plane crashed in Russia, and our president said, we don't even have a spy plane like that. And then they showed the picture of it. He's <laughs> like, well, I guess we didn't have one, right? And so just tell the truth to people, and life hurts, and uh, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, it's not fair. And and then uh, if all that's true, we still got to get up and make a good tomorrow. And so how, how do we make a good tomorrow with uh, pain and disappointment and frustration? And God's easy to hit because you can't see him. And uh, so, you know, like a clergyman does something wrong, it's easy to hate God. Because he's not there to actually like hold or talk to eye to eye. And so I sort of want to die someday, get old and die, never embarrassing God. I don't want him to go, well, that was embarrassing, Kent. And just, and I think the way to get there is to tell the truth. You know, one thing that, that I've been thinking about somewhat recently over the last few years is um, the weaponization of religion. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. But if we look in politics, all of a sudden, say, um, certain beliefs are paralleled now with religion in your political affiliation. And instead of looking at that from, say, a logical standpoint as a person, kind of like sifting through it, you know, the facts, you align yourself with that because that is your political affiliation. To me, it's it's just a uh, a marketing scheme. It's marketing, and it's dangerous. That's what happened in Germany. You know, the philosophers behind Hitler taught that people could just be viewed as a herd. They don't think. They're not sensible, and you can move the entire herd. And so if we can somehow, and in my faith, if we can somehow bring the conversation back to this guy named Jesus, not political parties, not economic systems. Uh, so we could have like these huge fights on Medicare for all or this, that other thing. 
But if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, you know what? I want you to be healthy. He would skip. I don't know that he didn't show any hint of working in systems. He -hmm. just took care for the individual. And so everybody, you know, everybody says, God bless America uh, when they're the president, even if they don't believe there's a God, because it plays well, it sells well. And, And so I think to hold your belief about morality and and right and wrong, your ethic, honestly, and not be a member of a herd when it comes to anything, really. And I think this, you know, I think that's part of like the whole tattoo thing or body modification. It's like, I'm an individual, you know, I look like everybody else until I got that on my arm. Now I'm unique. Well, be that way in your mind. Don't, don't just fall in because uh, everybody's going north, you know. Uh, a guy named Kierkegaard, he's a philosopher out of Denmark and Sweden. He, he had the best stories. He goes, one day the ducks all went to the duck church. <laughs> and the duck pastor came out and he opened the duck Bible. And his sermon text was, we ducks can fly. And all the ducks shouted, amen, we ducks can fly. And then all the ducks waddled home. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, we can fly. We just don't want to turn off our brain and say, you know, I'm whatever the Republicans or Democrats, I'm with them. Or whatever professor so-and-so said in my philosophy class or whatever the preacher said. Uh, these guys are, we're all here to share our insights, our opinions, so you can make your own. You know, uh, one thing I don't like is when religion tries to think for people. So people come to me all the time, pastor, what should I do? And I say, I don't know. You need to decide what you should do. But let me give you some thoughts I have on what you might want to do. Because, uh, you know, President Trump is not going to think for me. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States is not going to think for me. Uh, uh, President Obama wasn't going to think for me. I was going to think for myself. And to the degree I can support Clinton or Bush or anybody, I will. But to the degree that they ask me to turn off my brain, I won't. Uh, here's a great line. If two minds always agree, one of them isn't needed. <laughs> I, oh, have you ever been out to eat with somebody? They wait for you to order and then they say, I'll have whatever he ordered. Yeah. I was like, oh, you have a brain? Why don't you order something? <laughs> no, no, just whatever you have. And so. Well, yeah. maybe that's what is good there. Maybe that's what they're known for. It might be, but come on, think. <laughs> So you never order anything that somebody else is ordering? No, no, I, I do. I don't say whatever he got. Okay, okay, I see. I, if, I, if you order wings and I want wings, I'll say, I like wings, please. Okay. I won't say, oh, what a, whatever Cody wants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's say it's a, you know, a, ste- a pepper steak at Double Musky. Rather than go, eh, whatever Cody orders, I'll get. I'll say, I like the, double, I like the pepper steak. <laughs> and then we're both eating pepper steaks. Yeah, I love that steak. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is the most difficult part about being a pastor? Uh, I would say trying to speak for God, who uh, may not choose to speak at that time. So uh, uh, one of our teenagers years ago was uh, ran away from home, and uh, the police picked him up, and his parents said, well, teach him a lesson. So they took him to McLaughlin, and it was full. But they had an extra bed in... Uh, uh, API in the psychiatric security unit. 
So this 13 or 14 year old kid, maybe 12, this young kid runs away from home. He spends the night in uh, the same room as a mass murderer. Just terrible, terrible way to run the world, right? Well, he, he hung himself that night. So I'm, I'm uh, at church. I don't know. He, I know he's there, but I didn't know that he had hung himself. And so this lady comes up and she falls down on, on the floor and she's pulling on my pant leg and weeping. And I'm like, this is a little strange. She said, tell me my Stevie's in heaven. Tell me my Stevie. I said, What's, what, what about Stevie? He, he took his life. Tell me. I, I, don't, I can't speak for God. You know, I don't, I, he, God can talk and he can communicate. So methods are many. Principles are few. Methods may change, but principles never do. So I can share some principles. But uh, why, why, why is there so much pain in the world? I don't know. God hasn't chosen to explain that to us. Uh, I can make up an answer and sell books, but all the, uh, all the books I've ever read on the problem of pain, in the end they say, therefore we do not know. Yeah. Be, be, be scared for the guy who thinks he can talk for God. I've always said that, that the person who thinks they know all the answers. They're dangerous. They're very dangerous. Yeah. Right. Back to your earlier statement, lifelong learning. Uh, if God can fit into my brain, who the world's in trouble. He's a tiny little God. What was that movie? I don't know. But the guy's flipping the guy back and forth. He goes, puny God. <laughs> and uh, my son likes Oh, Avengers. It. It's an Avengers movie. Yeah. yeah. He's going, it's a puny God. Well, if God can, if, if I can make sense of him uh, entirely, he's pretty puny. And so uh, the hardest part I would say is uh, not being able to speak for God or thankfully I'm not, but uh, people want somebody to give them the definite and uh, and most of life has some indefinite stuff to it. So you encounter a lot of pain and tragedy and very difficult questions. How do you uh, how do you deal with that? Well, personally, I'm I'm learning to deal with it. Uh, professionally, it's a different deal. But my wife said to me years ago, I come home from a funeral, and she'd say, you know, you need to change because to be a good caring shepherd you feel with the sheep sheep and shepherds you feel with the sheep but when you come home our kids dad didn't die our kids grandpa's still fine but they get a dad who's entered the pain with the congregation they don't get a healthy dad and i go you're that's not oh i think you're right so i've been trying to learn you know the waxy showy pastor dude doesn't really help me but the guy who gets all the way in it kind of too far can't help me either. And so there's a balance there between, uh, you know, I'm learning to cry. Uh, I'm learning to cry. We had a plane crash at our church. Uh, not at our church, but people in our church. Dad, grandma, three kids perished in 10 seconds. They were gone, you know. And, uh, Mom still goes to our church. She's doing great. But... You know, that's painful. And uh, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem logical. Uh, there's nothing good about it. And so uh, what, it, what it does inside of me is it reminds me that the earth is not the ideal condition, but we are headed there. 
through the work of Jesus on the cross. And someday I'll be where it's ideal again. And I kind of long for that sometimes. And so uh, to help people um, navigate a broken world headed to an unbroken eternity. Okay, so do you want to help me understand something? I'd love to try. <laughs> when I was 13, my dad and I were in a really bad car accident. Mm -hmm. A guy in the other vehicle died. I broke my femur and had to be put into a medically induced coma for about a week. I was in the Loma Linda hospital for about a month. But when I got back home, my mom took me to church. And I remember during your sermon, you brought up the accident and how the church had been praying for me and my family the whole time. And I remember being a little embarrassed and saying to my mom, quote, everybody in here, unquote. To this day, I've never been able to make sense of why I said that. Okay, I got lost. Say that again. I got the accident part. I remember that. So when we got back, when mm -hmm. I got back home, right. my mom took me to church. I We're remember. sitting in church. And uh, you brought up the accident and how the church had been praying for me and my family. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, everyone was quiet. And I was a little embarrassed, but I looked toward my mom and I said, everybody in here. Everybody in here, meaning that they were praying for you? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. as I was writing this, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, maybe that's what it meant. But I think in the moment I was like, maybe everybody in here was paying attention to me. But I think really what the, maybe the question is, and maybe the reason I, I thought I'd ask you to help me understand it a little better. Maybe there's no right answer. But maybe it was the fact that everybody actually cared. And in fact, they did and they do. And uh, so uh, for me, the sign of the righteous life is dependence upon God. If, you, if Kent and Cody depend on God today, we're righteous just by God's grace. The act of depending on God is prayer. And so if you were to say to me, uh, Kent, I prayed for you today, there's nothing better you could do for me. You depended upon God for me. And so uh, 30 years ago, our church was packed, and we had to decide, are we going to build a bigger, big, big building, you know, and get thousands of seats and fill it up? But then we can't stop and say, hey, Cody, we were praying for you this week. Uh, once you create a certain vibe in your church, you can't sit on the stage and let people come up and share their tear and share their joy. And, uh, um, and so we intentionally went to having many churches that are smaller rather than one large one. And I don't ever want to pastor a place that's too big to take time for people. And so uh, Jesus, my hero, he always had time for people. And almost always they were hurting people. They were broken people. He never, he never walked by somebody crying out for help without helping. And so our service, we hope, has some of what you're talking about to say, uh, everybody here will stop for you. And that was a serious accident, you know, because mm -hmm. Loma Linda's a long ways from here. And uh, so I, I grew up in Barrow. And I love the Inupiat life, the Inupiat place, the people, the language. Uh, when somebody dies in Barrow, everything stopped. 
This is 1968 to 75. Everything stopped. An important thing happened. Somebody died. The funeral would have easy 800, 900,000 people. So we moved to Anchorage in my ninth grade year. My dad had a funeral. Like eight people came. We're trying to go to the cemetery. People are cutting off the procession. And I said to my dad, it's like nothing important happened here. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. I said, if I'm ever a pastor, we're going to bring the Inupit way, and we're going to say everything stops. One of our friends died. And so I've been to a funeral in Barrow that was seven days long. That's, that's the way to honor the deceased there. I've been to services here where only seven people went, and they didn't really even know the deceased. So to have a service and say, uh, sitting over here is a, is a child that was in a car accident. Let's all uh, stop and, and care. That's important to me. And uh, you can't do it in a mega setting, but we've intended, we have 11 services every weekend just so we don't have a mega setting. We don't, we are not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what we do. What we do is, I like about 300 people in a room, and you're able to talk to all 300 if you want. In one of your sermons a while back, you said that a lot of people come to church on Sunday for guidance for the rest of their week. Today, what kind of guidance would you give myself and listeners for the rest of the week? Excellent. Tremendous question. I would say, trust God. There's a song written years ago that I love to quote, God is too wise to be mistaken. He's too good to be unkind. So when you can't see his plan and you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. A friend of my friends was adopted and then he was unadopted like 60 years ago. Well, his, his adopted parents passed away not long ago. They left him in the will, $90 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Somebody's about to have the best day of their life. <laughs> Trust God. You know, you're going to win the lottery. Trust God. Uh, you're going to enter American Ninja and win. Trust God. Uh, some people are about to have the worst day of their life. They're about to get the call that says, you know what, this is really bad. Are you sitting down? And Trust God. Uh, so trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. In your experience, how difficult is it for people to have faith in those moments where, you know, they have to sit down, they get that phone call? It's easy to die like Christ if you've lived like him for a lifetime. So the more the person has walked with Christ, because, you know, he was hurt so bad over and over again and had such joy, the, the closer they are to that, then the easier it is to navigate these moments of faith crisis. If, if faith is not part of somebody's life, adding it in at the last minute is not quite as easy. And so, you know, one way of saying it is you want to develop your faith because someday you might need it. You know, you don't want to come up to, a, you know, the granddaddy of them all and not be ready. So if every day we just increase our faith, then that stabilizes us in those crisis moments. And, you know, you get some Christians, I think, that are fake on this. They say, well, I've never had a crisis of faith. Well, if you haven't, I'm not sure you're living in the real world. 
you know, you're not noticing uh, Palestinians being persecuted. You're not, uh, you know, we have our church in Burkina Faso. They broke in and killed the pastor two weeks ago, a friend of mine. Uh, radical Islam did not want Christianity in that region. You can't look at that and not have a crisis of faith to some degree. And so I kind of encourage crisis of faith, not, you know, not really encourage it, but an honest thinking person has to go one plus one equals two, and this is not equaling two. The world, this plus this is not equaling what it's supposed to equal. And so walk with God for your whole life, and you develop the skills of faith. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think Cody, that, thank you. That wraps it up. Thank you very much. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.